Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast, I feature Cuban-born painter Lillian Garcia Roig. She currently lives in Tallahassee, Florida. Her landscape-themed works have always explored the complex propositions of sense of place and belonging which so influence the construction of personal identity. She is most known for her large-scale, all-day cumulative paintings that underscores the complex nature of trying to capture firsthand the multidimensional and ever-changing experience of being in that specific location. Lillian recently embarked on a conceptual investigation of the idea of the Cuban landscape and how her American Belhousian education has colored her relationship to place and space. These new works are part of a series of perceptually based work, Echo Can Cuba and Hyphenated Nature series. She has earned several major awards, which include the 2021 Guggenheim Fellowship, the Joan Mitchell Foundation Award in Painting, and a Kim Brow Award from the Dallas Museum of Art. Residencies include a Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture Fellowship, Vermont Studio Center Artist Fellowship, Joan Mitchell Center Artist in Residency, and a visiting artist at the Ludwig Foundation in Havana, Cuba, to name a few. She is shown in museums in New York City, Mexico City, and several other museums throughout the Southeast. Her exhibitions include the Florida Prize in Orlando, Florida Contemporary Naples in 2019, and the 2020 Florida Biennial in Miami. Most recently, she had a large work acquired by the Perez Art Museum, Miami. Please be sure to stop by the museum to view her work if you attend Art Basel, Miami next month. Please visit the Cerebral Women website for a full and expanded bio. Thank you for tuning in to the Cerebral Women Art Talk podcast and enjoy this episode featuring Lillian Garcia Roig. Lillian, thank you so much for joining me on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Phyllis. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with you sharing with us. When did you first discover your artistic passion? Wow. Um, You know, I think that was just very early on. I always seemed to be able to notice things that other people didn't notice. Um, I also seemed to be able to draw quite a bit better than kids my age and even kids older. So, um, and I enjoyed doing it. So I really just was always drawing, always looking at things from a very early age. So you were drawing, does that include painting? Were you using colors and everything? (laughs) 
Well, no, I, I didn't paint probably until I got into high school, but I think the normal trajectory for, for most kids is you, um, you draw, but then you use colored pencils because they're not very messy. So parents seem to not mind them. <laughs> um, and they seem to work better than crayons. You can control them more. Um, although I still very, uh, vividly remember getting very excited about those boxes of 64 crayons that had a little sharpener in the back. I remember in, uh, in preschool, I had one of those, whereas, you know, everyone else had a box of eight or, you know, 16 colors, but no, I went to school with 64 colors. So um, I think that kind of set a lot early on. The Crayola boxes? Yes, with 64 colors and a sharpener. I remember that. (laughs) Was there one particular artist that really compelled you, that motivated you? No, I wouldn't say that there was one. Um, You know, I did, uh, my my parents were interested in going to museums, whether they were natural history museums, art museums, um, and even traveling. We would get in the car often and kind of go to some little town outside of Houston or wherever we happened to live. So I grew up going to probably a lot more museums than most people. And I really enjoyed them. I enjoyed looking at things. I mean, I enjoyed even, you know, natural history museums, or I enjoyed going to the zoo. And and so I think early on, um, maybe some of the artists that that I do remember really liking were folks like Velasquez. I mean, who, who doesn't like Velasquez? I think when you're young, you want to really, you know, learn how to draw something or paint something that looks realistic. But I was also very compelled to look at and draw, actually, the pre-Columbian and uh, the African sculptural uh, pieces. The Houston Museum of Art, we lived in Houston, had a rather good uh, collection of both of those. And whenever I could, sometimes we'd have art classes and I'd want to go draw in those collections. So I really liked the strong figuration um, and stylization in both the Mesoamerican and, and African sculptures. So maybe, you know, that was what influenced me a lot. That and folks like Velasquez. So it's kind of an, an odd combination, but there you have it. Did you ever lean towards figurative work? Actually, I only leaned towards figurative work uh, up until the time I went to Skowhegan. Um, I was most interested when I'd look at other artists, I actually very much liked the figurative uh, painters. So it wasn't just people like Velasquez or Sargent, but it was also Lucian Freud. He came out in the 80s and he was, I guess, pretty influential when I was in college. Um, but I just, I think most people like figures more, right? It seems like you can relate more to a figure than let's say a still life or a landscape. But, uh, yeah, I only painted figures, only pretty much drew figures, um, up until I went to Skowhegan and the model was not as available (laughs) as, uh, I might've wanted. And I just was spending a lot of time out walking in the various woods and, and natural areas. And, and I finally just said, well, if I'm spending all this time out here, I might as well work out here. And that was really the beginning of what I'm doing now. It started at Skowhegan in 1990. So share with us your practice. Tell us about your practice. What, what do you consider your studio? Well, so I consider my studio the outdoors. Um, I, I have really two distinct practices. Um, the 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 newest one is actually very new, but um, I like to go to different sites that seem fairly normal, nothing particularly um, spectacular about them, and spend extended periods of time painting on site. So I'm very interested in the idea of 
the experience of the day, you know, versus a time of light or, or a quality of light or something like that. I, um, I really enjoy just discovering things. So uh, over the course of the day, the, the light changes quite a bit. And sometimes, you know, you, you think an, an area looks a certain way and, and three hours later, all sorts of other interesting things um, kind of appear. And so I tend to work in what I would call a cumulative manner um, as things become highlighted and maybe come to my attention, I'll often include them. And so my works tend to have a feeling of, of a extra sort of heightened, almost like, you know, a summary of all of the highlighted moments of, of the day. And the latest ones have become rather large. It's taken me quite a long time to work from a more conventional uh, 24 by 18 inch canvas, which was uh, the size I was working on at Skowhegan. And over the years, I've worked up to being able to do five by four foot canvases. Um, I can't do those in one day. I usually those take two or three days. But um, And now I'm actually painting literally the whole day. I'll go out very early in the morning and I'll paint all day. So the light has a pretty radical change over the course of my painting. And what influences the color choices? Well, it's really kind of what I see. I, I don't, you know, you really don't have to make much. You don't have to make anything up. You just have to look hard. So um, if you're out at a place and your eyes get acclimated, you, you might be looking at what seems at first to be a gray kind of boring bark. But at a certain moment, you might see lots of pinks, lots of purples. Um, you know, four hours later, all of a sudden, there might be other colors that appear, um, you know, let alone the kind of darks and the lights and everything else. So um, I tend to just respond. And, and being in nature, um, especially if it's dense nature, um, what I find interesting is, is that there's no real formula. I'll start you know, I go, okay, I think I can work with whatever's here. There's plenty of stuff to work with. And I hope that over the course of the day, um, not hope, I know that over the course of the day, things will pop up. But sometimes I'll hear, let's say a bird. So I'll look up. And by looking up, I might notice something that I wouldn't have noticed before had the bird not made a sound. Or, or I mean, it's very intuitive and very what I would call overall. Um, but I also think that the way I paint is not unlike how I like to experience nature, which is you know, focusing in and out of space, you know, looking up, looking down, looking sideways. Um, I have a very kind of active perceptual experience when I'm in nature. I think we have to do that just so that, that we don't trip or have a branch hit our, you know, hit us in the face as we're walking by. But that's what ultimately I want my paintings to be like as well. So um, I don't paint an underpainting. I don't really want to understand what I'm looking at. I kind of trust in seeing the colors and the general shapes that I see and that at the end, it will all make sense because all of this is, you know, all of these are things I'm seeing. So when the painting ends up being finished is when it seems to be like the experience of what I was just looking at. How would you define your practice? Well, I mean, I, I do call myself a painter maybe not a traditional painter in some ways, although I, I do use pretty much only paint and brushes and my gloved fingers um, and squeezed out paint. So I don't use any kind of radical materials um, or mixed media, but um, I'm a perceptually based painter, you know, maybe a, um, a durational one. And when do the titles of your paintings enter the creative process? Oh, titles are hard for me. I mean, sometimes they just come. Maybe 
you know, sometimes they, they, they just appear. Um, they never come beforehand. They always come after. So the painting has to, you know, tell me. It's like a dialogue between the painting and maybe what I was thinking about, maybe something about the place that I've researched, um, something about just my experience in painting the painting. Um, but they, I, I want to be both descriptive and poetic, so not too literal, but not so um, obtuse that 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 it could be anything. Um, so yeah, titles are hard, and said so sometimes they come fairly quickly, but sometimes they take months. How do you keep learning? Well, I'm always looking, um, and when I find something that interests me, I'll try to read up about it, but. I look at a lot of other artists. I guess I, I try to research and learn about their practice and their interests. And I'm interested in what maybe other artists are reading or thinking about. Um, so that's probably the main way. So because you paint outside, what's involved with finding an area to paint? Do you drive for hours or work? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so, so some of it, I mean, some of where I end up painting, um, it's not very maybe a sexy, it might be kind of pragmatic in that it's, you know, where I can get my truck to. So places like, um, yeah, so it's kind of practical. So places like McDowell, like I love residencies where I can actually take my truck and uh, drive somewhere and, and let the setup stay there even, you know, for a day or two. So McDowell's a pretty ideal place. Um, they have 450 acres and a number of these sort of little trails that um, if you have a four by four truck, like I do, they let me go and and explore and set up and and leave it there. So um, uh, when I lived in Texas, it was a bit of a challenge in some ways because I, I did have well, I did have friends that had ranches or people that had ranches that would let me paint. But things like deer hunting season, you know, I mean, I would not go paint in certain ranches during deer hunting season, although they didn't, you know, shoot on their own ranch. It's kind of scary. And so, um, you know, the idea of just driving somewhere and pulling off the side of the road and, and painting, at least on the scale I do, is a, is a bit of a challenge. I mean, I don't really want to be a spectacle and I don't want to be shot at. So um, sometimes where I paint is determined by where I can paint. Um, I've uh, rented cabins in uh, in the Pacific Northwest, I've gone to residencies across the country. Um, there are some nat uh, nature preserves um, that I can drive to and paint at. Um, but I'm always looking for places. And, and often, um, I always ask if, if I'm invited to have a museum show, like a solo show, and there's some time to prep. I always ask the uh, director if, or curator, if they can find some people in the area that are willing, that have some land and are willing to let me go paint at it. Cause I always like painting something from whatever place I'm being invited to show at if possible. Um, and usually, you know, they'll find some folks that have, uh, you know, I personally don't have a bunch of land, but apparently there's lots of people out there that have uh, plenty of land and places where you can kind of go stay and, and, uh, Make some work. I love the painting Banyan that you created. Thank you. Can you share with listeners how that came about? Yes, the um, the the Banyan is metaphor. It's it, the full title's Fluid Perceptions. Banyan is metaphor. Was a piece um, 
that I, that I had actually wanted to paint banyans for many, many years, but I live in Tallahassee, Florida. So for your listeners, um, you know, we think of Florida as Miami, but Tallahassee is really more like Southern Georgia. Things freeze up here. So we don't have banyan trees. They're, they're more of a tropical tree. But I really wanted to paint them for a while. And in 2015, um, a couple folks uh, at FSU were invited to have a show down at the Ringling Museum in Sarasota. And Sarasota, um, well, on that property, they actually have a number of banyan trees with an interesting history. But I was able to go down there and work on site for several weeks. And my idea was, um, well, not the idea, but going back. in uh, Banyan trees are pretty significant in that in the Caribbean, almost every park will have some sort of banyan tree um, anchoring it. So it's a very common tree in, um, in, in most of the Caribbean, but it's, it itself is not a native of the Caribbean. It's actually from South Asia. So I was fascinated by the fact that this tree that I had assumed growing up was a tropical tree from the Caribbean was in fact a tree that had migrated there. And then this tree does grow in the Southern parts of Florida and the banyan, some, some people might know it as um, like a, from the fig family, like the strangling figs, it has these aerial roots that come down. And over time, if you don't cut them, they become, they look like trunks of the tree. And over many, many years, the tree just keeps growing and growing and growing. And I think the largest living tree in the world is a banyan tree that's in somewhere in India. Mm. That That is, um, I mean, ridiculously large. Um, I mean, it's just pretty amazing. It's, it's, it's almost like its own um, neighborhood. Um, so the idea of, of the banyan trees with the aerial roots, you know, them becoming the trunks, I thought was a lovely metaphor for extended family and kind of this idea of migration. But, but my particular tree, I wanted to emphasize the fluid nature of different individual pieces. So a lot of my work, when I go to a place, I'll, I will often put each piece at the same height next to one another and play around with different uh, interchange them to see if together the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And I had wanted to make a really, really large piece. The The Ringling Museum has these amazingly large and beautiful new galleries. And the Ringling also is known for these very large Rubens uh, tapestry paintings. They're, they're paintings, but they're, they're called cartoons um, of the Eucharist uh, cycle the Eucharist cycle paintings. And they're something like 12 by maybe 18 feet. So these walls were very large and I wanted to kind of out Rubens Rubens, but I also wanted to try to capture the grandeur of these huge banyan trees and they had this great gallery wall. So I thought, well, how can I make a really large piece? Since I paint on site, I can only paint five by four feet. And you know, this, the individual canvas can only be that large. So I figured out that if I make some sort of component piece where I'm not prejudging what it is I'm going to make. I'm just going to make a bunch of paintings and then continue to discover if by putting them next to one another, I can find new formal relationships. Um, that's ultimately what I did with this piece. It, it was a 15 panel piece that ultimately was 14 feet tall by 20 feet wide. And it was composed of 10 five by four foot paintings and five four by four foot paintings. And so um, what's kind of uh, extra, I think, wonderful ultimately about it and, and, and underscores this idea of the fluidity, 
you know, the fluid nature of this piece is that I can rearrange the painting into multiple different configurations. And I get very excited how even in my own paintings, I can find new spaces, just like when I'm in nature, you know, as I paint over the course of the day, new things, you know, are brought to my attention and I, you know, discover them and try to capture them and paint. So this idea of, of really just kind of looking and finding new spaces and then maybe realizing that the spaces aren't illusionistically right, but they make enough of a sense that your eye can formally go in and out of these spaces. And uh, yeah, that was the largest piece to date that I've been able to, uh, to do that with. It's a fascinating work. Thank you. What are you excited about now? Well, I'm excited about a number of things. Um, I'm particularly excited that one of my uh, larger pieces, uh, uh, a five-panel piece called uh, Hyperbolic Nature, La Florida, was just acquired by the Perez Museum and is up uh, on view in their permanent um, exhibition gallery. And um, I'm told it's going to be up through Art Basel. So if anyone is down in Miami during Art Basel and goes to the Perez, please check that out. So I'm excited that some of this large on-site work is um, is getting out there and is getting viewed. Um, and, and I will always be doing more of this. Um, I'm currently actually finishing up a project as part of the Blackwell Prize. I did some research um in Georgia, where uh, University of West Georgia sponsors this prize. And so I've been painting at certain sites that have uh, uh, significance to the various uh, people who have lived in this area over time. Um, and then the other thing that I'm kind of, that I am excited about is I'm continuing to work on um, a very new, exciting project uh, that's part of the, the Guggenheim Fellowship. Um, and I have a whole another body of work that isn't the on-site stuff that involves uh, ideas of Cuba or the idea of Cuban landscape, Cuban nature. Um, and, uh, you know, we can talk more about that if you want, but this is a whole another body of work. And it's something that I am looking forward to diving deeper into this summer. That's wonderful. And what do you feel is the purpose of art? Huh, that's a big question. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's lots of purposes, but I think that, you know, art, um, sometimes words don't cut it. You know, sometimes we really need to be, we need to think about things in more abstractive ways, more maybe for me, visual ways. Um, you know, I really do believe an image can stand for more than a thousand words. Um, but I think art, helps us think about things in a more maybe intuitive way that might then lead to some other progress, I guess, in what we're thinking about in the broader world. Art also seems to describe maybe things that that, that, that aren't quite describable yet. And now I'm tripping over words because as you can tell, I'm not a wordsmith. <laughs> That's fine. I might need to get some pain out. <laughs> Yeah, your work is, uh, it's amazing. I could just sit there and look at it and stare at it. It's a lot of different words. This has been a great conversation. So this is our last question. What do you feel is your role as an artist? I think that my role as an artist is to help share my ability to maybe understand the world, you know, through art, through my eyes. It's, it's maybe my way of 
noticing things, maybe small things, and communicating some sense of um, connection to the world. Um, and if I can connect to the world, I think if people can then connect, you know, through my paintings, maybe, you know, by extension, you know, to that world or to their own world that, you know, these works might remind them of, um, it just makes um, one's existence, maybe it marks it in a way that's more meaningful. This has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining me on my podcast. Well, thank you for having me. This has been lovely and I can't wait to, to meet you in person. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.